Coming up on Philosophy Talk. We scientists have now located a gene which we scientists believe makes you want to punch people in the head when they take the scientific process and subject it to their pathological literal-mindedness. Science is supposed to discover objective truths. But some scientists claim a monopoly on the discovery of truth. Isn't that arrogant? Championing science doesn't have to mean rejecting other forms of knowledge. Humans discovered or invented the process of science. Humans invented philosophy. So keep that in mind that when you go to seek an absolute truth, you're a human seeking the truth. So there's going to be limits. How do we make a science that's more intellectually humble? Our guest is Massimo Pilucci, editor of Science Unlimited, The Challenges of Scientism. The science overreach. I am a scientist, not a philosopher. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Hi, I'm Josh Lampy. And I'm Ray Briggs. Thanks for downloading this episode of Philosophy Talk. Did you know we've got a library of more than 500 episodes over at our website? Yeah, at philosophytalk.org, we question everything. Except your intelligence. From Aristotle to Zeno, from anarchy to Zen. Become a subscriber today at philosophytalk.org. And now, on with the show. Are there questions that science is powerless to answer? Or... Is science the measure of all things? Science may tell us what is, but can it tell us what ought to be? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ken teaches philosophy, and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. And today we're asking, does science overreach? It's the sixth and final episode in our series on intellectual humility. Does science overreach? You bet it does. Don't you agree, Ken? <laughs> no. I mean, Josh, without science, we, we'd be back on the savannah hunting with stone axes or something. Okay, look, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not knocking science. I'm just saying it, it needs to stay in its lane. <laughs> stay in its lane? Josh, science's lane is everywhere. I mean, it's the measure of all things. Of what is, that it is, um, what is not, that it is not. Uh, who are you today, a Protagoras? I mean, look, science is not the measure of beauty or, or, or significance or, or right and wrong. Whoa, 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 slow down, Josh. Do you take that list of, I don't know, call them untouchables, to be objective or merely subjective? Why does that matter? Well, because if your list of untouchables is objective, then science gets the last word, I'm afraid. I mean, science and science alone discovers and explains the objective features of the world, right? I mean, you agree with that. The objective features of the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, start by thinking about, like, quarks and gluons. They're out there. And then all the less fundamental things, like rocks and cells and animals, that are, you know, built out of these fundamental things. Okay, that's a pretty picture. But what's it got to do with beauty? Well, Josh, because if beauty is real then it better fit into that picture somewhere. And if science discovers that beauty isn't part of the picture, uh, then I'm afraid that beauty's just not real. I mean, beauty would have to go the way of all the dead dogmas, superstitions, and fantasies that science has progressively forced us to abandon. That's what that's why that matters. Oh my God, you sound like a total reductionist. You sound like you make that sound like that's a bad thing. Of course, I'm a reductionist. What's wrong with being a reductionist? Well, look, even if it turned out that beauty isn't included in that that grand list of objective features of the world that you're talking about, 
all that's going to show is that beauty is an ineffable property of human experience beyond the reach of science. Oh, I know, like figments of our imagination, right? Not like figments of our imagination. No, 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 no. Look, even if beauty isn't out there somewhere, it's still real. Because, you know, you and I, we're real. And our, our subjective experiences, they're real too. Well, Josh, I don't know. That depends on what you mean by real. Oh, spoken like a true philosopher. <laughs> oh, I wear that as a badge of honor too. Well then, Mr. Philosopher, let me just say this to you. Beauty got its grip on the human mind long before we became so obsessed with science. And, and that grip on our imaginations, that grip on us, that's going to last even if one day we relinquish science. Oh, my God. That would be a tragic outcome, John. Look, fair enough. I'm, I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying, Ken, there's more in heaven and earth than is dreamed of in your science textbooks. Oh, no. You're speaking like a true literary type. Well, what's wrong with that? <laughs> And at, look, as a proud literary type, I'm going to insist on something. I'm going to insist sci science is fantastic, but it's never going to replace literature. Literature does things that science cannot hope to accomplish. Oh, come on. Like what? Well, science explains the world, and that's very important. But literature, literature also gets to narrate the world. Narrate the world? What's the big difference? Well, explanations about causes and effects, but narration is also about experience uh, okay, and meaning and value. Yeah, yeah, okay, I get you, Josh. That, that's an important distinction. But I'm, I'm still... Look, I'm going to ask you, can't there be a science of meaning-making, value-having, and experience? Well, maybe. No, not maybe, Josh, not maybe. There has to be a science of it. I mean, because look, after all, we human beings... I hate to tell you this, Josh. We're part of nature, too. Uh, we, too, are made of matter and energy. We're not made of spook stuff, mysterious spook stuff. You're starting to sound a little scientistic. Scientistic? Yeah, like you think absolutely everything has to bow to science, like like it's the almighty ruler. You, you know you, you know the facts of everything and the value of nothing. <laughs> look, look, Josh. I don't mean to be scientistic, whatever that is. I mean to be scientific. And I, I think there's a big difference between scientistic and scientific. I, I totally agree. I, I'm just saying that's a bit of a fine needle to thread. If you're going to thread that needle between science and scientism, you better start by acknowledging that science has limits. Oh, of course it has its limits. I grant you that. If we don't respect the limits of science, we'll end up doing bad science, pseudoscience. Exactly. And there's plenty of that out there. And it's even worse than that. Even the best science can never answer all the pressing questions that human beings find so important. And that's precisely why we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Liza Veal, to look at gender through the eyes of science, bad science, and non-science. She files this report. There's a long tradition of feminist critique of science. Various disciplines have tried to objectively describe gender to find out, is gender more than just a cultural construct? Is it based in biological difference? That's an effort that kind of failed. Helen Longino with Stanford University says it's hard to neutralize our ideas about gender, which is necessary to make objective observations. In a lot of studies, there were already assumptions built into uh, the research itself, whether about how to interpret the evidence or assumptions about uh, how to describe the data. There's this example about how some mainly male anthropologists assumed that men changed the course of human evolution. But that turned out to be not quite right. 
since they figured out that humans adapted because of the development of stone tools. Our teeth became smaller, our posture more upright, because tools made life easier. So the assumption was stone tools were created by men for hunting. So men changed the course of human evolution. But a decade later, women anthropologists pointed out that those tools were just as likely used for digging, crushing seeds, softening roots, in other words, female activities. And so that showed the ways in which the man, the hunter model was really dependent on these assumptions about male activity and female inactivity. Critiquing methodology is part of science. Scientists are always self-critiquing. But Longino's saying some things are so subjective that it's hard to approach them objectively. There is no perfect methodology. Our concepts of gender kind of affect the way we understand the rest of the world. So gender isn't just an effect. Gender also produces ways in which we understand the world, or at least they reinforce each other. So when trying to study things like gender, Longino knows the data will be messy. There's no way to control for factors like history and culture in human behavior. There's no accounting for what could be the limitless potential of the future. Longino says science can't predict how humans are going to change their kind of social and physical environments beyond making kind of very broad general claims that are kind of empty. Gender is always adapting as the world changes, but right now it seems like the conversation is changing rapidly. Younger generations are dispensing with the female-male binary system faster than many could have imagined. And people are looking for ways to make sense of this outside of science. It isn't that you don't like boys. It's that you only like boys you want to be. This is the poet Andrea Gibson in some of their poem, Your Life. Mary Levine calls you a dyke and you don't have the language to tell her she's wrong and right. So you just show up to her house, promising to paint your fingernails red with what will gush from her busted face if she ever says it again. The people challenging the binary gender system see gender as something expansive and fluid. Another poet, Leslie Feinberg, says, gender is the poetry each of us makes with the language we've been given. And that's what this poem by Andrea Gibson is about. You don't yet know the boys are building their confidence on stolen land, but you do worry the girls might be occupied with things you will never understand, won't ever, ever be good at. Gibson says poetry, specifically queer poetry, helped them know how to be. Choosing your life and how that made you into someone who now often finds it easy to explain your gender by saying you are happiest on the road when you're not here or there, but in between the yellow line running down the center of it all like a sunbeam. Your name is not a song you will sing under your breath. I promise your pronouns haven't even been invented yet. You could say poetry, like science, is a way of knowing, but it's subjective, not objective. Instead of giving us data, it conveys experience. And ultimately, for every person, that's what gender is, subjective experience. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Liza Beale. Thanks for that uh, fascinating uh, tour through the science, non-science, and pseudoscience of uh, gender, Eliza. I'm Ken Taylor. With me is my Stanford colleague, Josh Landy. And today, we're asking about science and intellectual humility. We're joined now by Massimo Pellucci, professor of philosophy at the City University of New York and co-editor of Science Unlimited, The Challenges of Scientism. Welcome back to Philosophy Talk, Massimo. Hey, it's a pleasure as usual. So, Massimo, uh, fascinating uh, topic: science versus scientism. But I wonder what first got you interested in this in that in that topic. 
As it often is the case, it's personal history. I began my career, academic career, as a scientist. I was a scientist for more than 20 years and a biologist. Uh, and I also got interested in, in public understanding of science, and I tried to do some of my own sort of contributions in that area. And then I noticed that some of my colleagues, uh, whenever they were in front of a microphone or, or a television camera, uh, were going way beyond what, I, what I was actually warranted by the, you know, the state of the, of the art or the state of the science at that time. And that got me into paying attention to the fact that sometimes people can make claims on behalf of science that are just not defensible. And, and, and I think that that's both a disservice to the public and a disservice actually to science itself. Well, so it sounds like I can see where you're going. It's, yeah, I, was, I wanted to get a get a, a sense of whose side you're on in the, the debate that uh, Ken and I were having a moment ago. You know, he was saying science is the measure of what is and what is not. It was a nice phrase, and I was saying it's not the measure of meaning, value, and experience. So, where do you stand on all this, Massimo? Like you don't oh, know. I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right, Josh. <laughs> uh, and that's not because you pay me for it, uh, to pay this. Uh, no, so, so it is an open question. I mean, the, the book that uh, you mentioned from, for Chicago Press that I co-edited with my friend and colleague Martin Baldry is a pretty clear uh, uh, sort of example of this because we have a lot of philosophers there and a few scientists, and they fall all over the place. Some of them mm-hmm. are very critical of scientific approach or how they, what they see as a scientific approach. Other ones uh, actually wear it as a badge of honor, and then there are some people in between. So it's yeah, not but, exactly an open and shut case. So, but let me ask you a question, because Josh kind of avoided one of the things I said to him. I don't know how much I believe <laughs> everything I said in the opening, and I'm trying to get an idea out there. But there, but he didn't answer one of the questions, I believe. Look, human beings make meaning. They make value. They, they have experiences, but human beings are just part of nature. So is, doesn't there have to be? some kind of understanding of how in nature human beings making meaning and value and all that stuff arises and how it's constituted? Or or take Liza's example from the report, there's a subjective experience of gender. Is there ever going to be a science of that, of the subjective experience? Well, I think I hate to say this, but I think the answer is yes and no. <laughs> For instance, <laughs> you know, in the case of gender, uh, you know, I, I love Ellen's uh, work and I read a lot of her uh, papers and, and, and books. But I think that particular example of gender, it's a little bit problematic uh, because her own example uh, shows that you can you can clearly do a science of gender. I mean, uh, you know, yes, the first pass was done by, you know, guess what? Uh, white, old white males, or increasingly older white males, and therefore there were certain assumptions built into that research uh, that, however, uh, can be corrected. Uh, you know, once, in fact, one of, of Ellen's points in, in a couple of her books is precisely that the science should be done uh, in a, by a diversity of kind of, of people, precisely because they bring different uh, perspectives on it. So, so, you so, can, so you can actually check it. So I think what we have to sort out, and we'll have to start doing that in our next segment, is how we, I mean, not that there can't be a science of gender, not that there can't be a science of valuing, but what's it going to contribute versus what the right. having and living of this value and the living of gender gender right. contributes. And, and I think that's a complicated question that you can't just dismiss with charges of scientism versus non-scientism. But we'll get to that in, in, as we go along. Uh, you're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're asking whether science is intellectually arrogant with Massimo Pigliucci from the City University of New York. What's the difference between being scientific and being scientistic? Pseudoscience should definitely give way to science, but should other forms of non-science give way too? And how do we tell the difference between good science, illegitimate pseudoscience, and perfectly legitimate non-science like the stuff I do? 
distinguishing science, pseudoscience, and that which is not even in the business of science. Plus, your calls and emails, whether scientific or not, when Philosophy Talk continues. Well, of course, science is real, but that's not the question. The question is, is it the only reality? I'm Ken Taylor. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy, and we're asking about science and intellectual overreach. Our guest today is Massimo Pellucci, co-editor of Science Unlimited, The Challenges of Scientism. So, Massimo, I want to draw some boundaries here if you can help us. I think we there are two different boundaries. There is that between legitimate science and like pseudoscience. That's one hand. And then there's that boundary between that which is in the business of science and that which is not. But you got, I got to admit, I'm not really sure how to draw either of these boundaries in a principled way. And... Uh, you're smarter than I am, so I wonder, can you help us out? <laughs> I mean, start with whichever of the two you're e- uh, you find easier to deal with, but help us out Welcome here. to the club. It's, it, it is difficult, and, and it's difficult because both boundaries are, I think, inherently fuzzy. Mm. I do think that the easiest one or less difficult one is the one between science and pseudoscience, and the reason for that is because pseudoscience, broadly construed, is understood as some kind of enterprise like, I don't know, parapsychology, for instance, that pretends to be science, meaning that it, it has all the trappings of science, you know, publications and experiments and things like that, uh, while in fact it demonstrably is not. And so that's somewhat easy, at least in, in most cases, to, to draw that kind of boundaries, although there are, in fact, borderline situations. But there when is you this... come to the other... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, uh, no. When, sorry. When you come to the other, it's kind of... You know, now you're dealing with the entire universe of human understanding. And yeah. So it's much mm-hmm. more broad. So, I mean, Josh is not a scientist. Thank you. Right. But <laughs> I've heard you lecture. I've heard you lecture about how to understand a text. And you say you have to have a conjecture and you have to have right. evidence. Right. And the evidence has to be, the, the conjecture has yeah. to be ported, uh, supported by conje- uh, textual evidence. Yeah. And that sounds very scientific. Yeah, so no, why is it what you do? Right. So, I mean, first of all, I should say I'm a huge fan of science. So, you know, we're, 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 we're all three of us, I think, sitting in this middle ground where we're lovers of science, but we also want to find the limits. Yeah. And so the other thing, I totally agree. So Ken's totally right, Massimo. I want to sort of throw this over to you. Uh, it sometimes seems to me that, in fact, the standards of evidence, if you're doing it right, if you're doing literary criticism right, uh, if you're in an aesthetic field, you're still making arguments. You're still drawing on evidence. Aren't, aren't they a little bit comparable to the, the the standards of evidence in some of the natural sciences? Yeah, I do think that they're comparable. But but there now we need to ask ourselves another question. I mean, we, we seem to be talking as if we actually, we actually knew what science is. Uh, or, fair or point. We had a, you know, okay, right? let's start from that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and the problem is that sometimes people that are, you know, some of my colleagues who are more scientifically oriented, essentially give, when pushed, they give a definition of science that is essentially coextensive with human reason. Uh, For instance, very, very interestingly, they seem to automatically include both logic and mathematics within science. And I think that logic and mathematics are not science. They're very useful to science, but they're not. They're outside Um, because they're not empirical. They're not, you know, they they don't do experiments to settle whether modus ponens is is valid or not uh, and things like that. So it depends on how you think of it. Yes. Do you think that that experiment, that's one of the criteria for distinguishing what's science and what's not science? 
I would say uh, theory-driven or largely theory-driven systematic experiments and observations are the kind of thing that tend to identify something as a science. But even there, I mean, think about it this way. There's two dimensions. First of all, there's a lot of different kinds of sciences. Uh, physics is not the same thing as biology, which is not the same thing as psychology at all. I mean, they, they work differently. Some of them are historical sciences. Some of them are not. Some of them are more experimental. Some of them are no exper do, do experiments at all. Not only that, but the definition, the, the, the concept of science actually changes throughout time. What, what Aristotle was doing on the island of Lesbo, was that science? Yeah, by some understanding of it, but certainly wasn't nothing like, you know, the science that we uh, know today. Was Galileo doing science? Yeah, it was closer, right. but not quite. Okay, but, but, but let me give you a different thought. I mean, I get your point that, that science has no, like, fixed uh, essence that can be articulated in necessary and sufficient conditions. It's a kind of sprawling thing with, like, a Wittgensteinian... Uh, yep. the family resemblance that seems plausible to me but here's the thing suppose I stand the total fabric of science rather than define it I just say there it is right now here's the thing about that enterprise in its sprawling totality it's extraordinarily successful and moreover sure. it's extraordinarily good at doing something that's it's really hard to get in philosophy or and I think in literature too a convergence of uh, a convergence of belief driven by considerations that are out in the open and 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 public and all that stuff and so i mean if you say you mean this temptation to equate that with human reason i understand where that comes from because if reason yeah. is that thing that produces consensus among well-reasoning creatures well science is the main place where we see that operative do you think there's not anything to that thought no, no, there's a lot to that thought. But again, uh, think about alternatives. So, so it's well known, for instance, that in mathematics and logic, complex problems have sometimes multiple solutions at which you can arrive in different in different paths, and no solution is necessarily better than another. That's true. Uh, in other right, so in other words, a lot of what we do outside of science, actually, uh, in in a lot of cases, the facts really underdetermine. Uh, so to speak, as philosophers say, uh, the outcome. The, there's more than one way of looking at, at a number of complex issues. And yes, the, the lure of science is precisely what you're talking about. But can I give you an example of where it runs into limitations? Definitely. Sure. Uh, so, so I was reading just before coming in the studio today this, this, this thing. This has to do with economics, which, uh, you know, aspires at the very least to be a science, certainly the most scientific of the social sciences. It's the dismal science, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, so here's what happened. A few decades ago, there was this incredibly successful program in sub-Saharan Africa uh, led by the World Health Organization to counter a particular parasitic uh, you know, disease that causes blindness in, in people. Okay. And the program was incredibly successful. Okay? It prevented hundreds of thousands of people from, from, from going blind, which I think the three of us would agree it's a success. Sure. Now, the economists that were involved uh, in the program, however, could not show that it was worth it. What? Because they did a cost-benefit analysis and the analysis came, came down to be inconclusive. Oh and the reason God. it can be inconclusive, <laughs> right, uh, is that is the going. people who were being helped were so poor that the benefit for saving their high sight didn't, in fact, have a lot of monetary impact. Oh, okay? my goodness. In fact, they, right. in fact, they quote, and here is, is a quote from the report. They say, uh, these are humanitarian benefits associated, there are humanitarian benefits associated with reducing the blindness and suffering caused by the disease. But these benefits are inherently unmeasurable, and we will not account for them. 
Well, what? what did you say to me in the opening, Josh? I know the something. That, you know the facts of everything and the value of nothing. nothing. <laughs> so that actually brings me to a, to a broader question, Massimo. You know, so you know, one area where some people think there's overreach, right? Where where science really can't answer the questions is, is the domain of value. So we so we right. we were talking earlier about subjective experience, and maybe we should try to come back to that if we can. But but what about value? You know, there's that Humean line, right? You can't get from an is to an ought. I mean, is it, is that mm. your view that that really science science can tell us all kinds of things about what is, but it really has nothing to say about what should be? So that's a great question because the, the is ought. Uh, problem uh, as understood by, by Hume and s since Hume. It's a great divide between philosophers who reject science on the one hand, because all they do, need to do is to say, hey, Hume said is art, unbridgeable, that's it, done. <laughs> um, and that's, I think, silly, quite frankly. Okay. <laughs> it's a little too quick. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a lot uh, too quick. Yeah, as you were as you guys were saying earlier, I mean, you can't just you know throw the labels of of scientific to somebody right. and be done with it. You have right. to actually justify. It. In the same way, I would add, as it, you can't just throw pseudoscience at somebody and and be done with it. I mean, you you have to actually do the work. But isn't there but something from, to this? I mean, you know, my, my favorite. I've got I've got this poster in my office that says, uh, "Science can tell you how to clone a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Humanities can tell you why it might be a bad idea." Uh, that's I mean, perfectly good. <laughs> right? I mean, isn't yeah. there something to this idea that, uh, you know, science isn't really in the business of, I mean, the, the yeah. world doesn't come with values to be found in it. Where, how would science find values? Where would they be? Yeah, yeah that, that's right. So there is some value to the idea, which means that on the other side, when the scientists or some scientists are saying, hey, we can just read your values in your brain scan, that's right. also not a particularly good starting point. Uh, which is why this this example this issue that is art is actually a great example to to you know wrap our minds around this, this sort of stuff. Now my favorite approach to this is something that uh, was put forth a few decades ago by one of those philosophers that most people have never heard of and they should have, uh, and that's Wilfred Sellers. Um, Sellers proposed this idea that what we have uh, in terms of human understanding is uh, is a scientific image of the world. That's what the physicist tells you, the biologist tells you, the chemist tells you, and so on and so forth is going on. So it's the fact that I'm now taking notes on, on, on a, you know, with the use of a table, and this table really at some level of analysis is actually a bunch of really dynamic molecules bumping into each other. That's the scientific view of the world. Uh, but then we also have the what he called the manifest image. And the manifest image is the way in which we understand and navigate the world on a day-to-day -day basis. And frankly, if a physicist tells me that this, this table here is really a dynamic and highly unstable bunch of molecules bumping into each other, this helps me not at all. But in using the table. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But I know I, I love this distinction of sellers is too. I organize my this course I teach on a regular basis, uh, uh, mind, meaning, and uh, nature around this distinction between the manifest and the scientific image. But the big question for me, and I think it was a question for sellers, is how can we make it the case? Can we make it the case that the deliver that we can reconcile the deliverances of the manifest image with the deliverances of the scientific image? I think that's a right. real deep, hard challenge. I mean, you could say, well, forget the reconciliation, but I think that's given up to, to so like freedom. We experience ourselves as free, autonomous beings. And then science comes along and says, you know, you're just made out of quarks and gluons and cells and neurons and electrochemical transmitters. And I can't figure out how that freedom thing fits in this picture. You don't just get right. to say, oh, too bad for you, Mr. Scientist. I, I got the <laughs> manifest image and I'm going to, I'm, I'm sticking with it. That, that's not, that doesn't. That doesn't work because I mean, one of the I mean, no. science has successfully shown us 
over the centuries that elements of the manifest image are at least problematic and some may have to be surrendered. You don't, yeah, you don't you know, buy that? Atoms aren't conscious, and yet That's consciousness true. exists. So the question is, how do we get from right. the atoms and the molecules and the cells and the neurons to consciousness? We don't, unless you're going to go David Chalmers' route and just say, well, this is super added. But that's, that's, I don't right. like that at all. Of course, uh, atoms are not conscious unless you're panpsychist, also right. as David Chalmers. <laughs> right. And I yes. am not. Um, so, <laughs> right. I think you're, you're absolutely right that this, this problem is a complex one. That's why uh, Wilfred Sellers and some of his, of his students actually thought that this is a major goal for modern philosophy, right? right. That, that, that maintaining, developing and maintaining and fine-tuning this, what he called the stereoscopic view uh, right. that keeps in, in mind and sort of interact with the, 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 two, with the two views is, is, in fact, a major research program for exactly. modern philosophy. Exactly. So, so and, and let me say, so I want to go back to value. I think it's true. You, you poo-pooed the idea that we could look at a cerebroscope and say, uh, here's what you value. But again, val I'm not talking about, Josh said values are not out there. Some people would disagree with that. I mean, he's influenced by sure. Nietzsche, who <laughs> says there's nothing in nature that commands, right? He's deeply influenced by that. So am I. Right. There is nothing in nature that commands. So where, does, where do values get to be? from us somehow, something we do. But again, we're human beings. There's another philosopher, Hugh, uh, Hugh Price, who says, he has this thing he calls, what he calls subject naturalism. The subject mm -hmm. is part of nature, and we have to understand the subject as part of nature. Do you agree or disagree? I can't tell whether you agree or disagree with the subject ultimately is just part of nature. The reason you can't figure it out is because maybe I don't know it either. Um, well, <laughs> so, so here's the thing. Yes, the subject, of course, I'm a biologist. We're human beings. So when, when somebody wants to push and say, look, we're part of nature, so what are you talking about? I have to agree. Of course we're part of nature. But then again, um, there is part of things that just don't, certain discussions for which that observation, which is true, doesn't seem to help. So if I make a distinction, for instance, between artificial objects and natural objects, right? And I say, look, a tree is, an, an, is a natural object, but a table is an artificial object. We understand pretty well what we're talking about, right? There's a clear distinction there. And now you can say, but no, a table is also a natural object because it's made by human beings who are natural. Yeah, but now we are confusing two different yeah. things. You're, you're, you're missing a distinction that it's actually important. So let me get back to the values stuff for a minute. Okay. But instead of using ethics and, and therefore value, let me use mathematics because I think it's easier uh, to, 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 understand it, that, to understand the point that way. So math, think about mathematics and brain scans. So you can do a brain scan of a mathematician working on a problem, let's say, for math's last theorem. Okay. And you will learn a lot of interesting things from that <laughs> brain scan probably, you know, which areas of the brain are, are lit up and mm -hmm. what, what the, what's going on inside the head of the mathematician. One thing you will definitely not learn from looking at the scan is whether the damn theorem is true or not. That's right. true. Exactly. That's true. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that, right? <laughs> that's why I like this idea of the stereoscopic vision because uh, yes. clearly both of these levels of analysis are important, but the, the reductionist idea that only one of them counts, you know, the lowest level is the real thing, and all this phenomenal stuff, that's just, you know, it's just illusion. Well, it's yeah. fluff. I can't buy that at all, right? It doesn't sound like you buy it either. It seems like and we, either, we and need the no. stereoscopic. And vision. I agree with you both, right. but I do have to say, I want. To, I think we should distinguish between like studying the cognitive, cultural, psychological basis, for example, of human valuing and living out our values. I mean, ethical life is one thing. Ethical life is never going to be replaced by a science of ethical life. I mean, but I do think there can be a science of our creation of ethical life. There can be a science of sure. our creation of. 
political life, right. a science Absolutely. of our creation of, of economic life, but that doesn't substitute for like living the life. Right. That's the thing that I think the it's, scientific person... It, it could person, be a characterization of the experience, but it isn't the experience. Right. It's not the doing, right? right? It's understanding it's the so doing. It's also a characterization of the experience, but I, 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 would, I would push back a little bit and say that it's a partial characterization of the experience. Here, here's another example, which is one of my favorite ones. I have a colleague at City College that uh, once came uh, and gave a, a guest lecture, and the guy is a social scientist, and his, his specialty is uh, research on colonialism. And so we were talking about the nature of social science as opposed to natural science as opposed to philosophy and things like that. And he came up with this description of what it does that I thought was captured really nicely uh, the, the distinction we're trying to make. He says, look, it's called a social science because we actually do use some of the standard tools of the sciences, you know, bar borrowed from the natural sciences. We collect quantitative data on, you know, the economic, uh, economics of uh, states uh, under colonialism and, and a bunch of other things, you know, demographics and a bunch of stuff like that. And that's all very useful, and it's part of the picture of understanding the process and the phenomenon of colonialism. But he said, then I also had to spend a lot of time reading the personal diaries of people who lived under colonialism right. on each side, on either side, right. and books and even fiction written about colonialism by people who lived it, again, on either side. Because if I don't get that, then I can't make sense of the human experience exactly. that all those numbers and, 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 and objective measures kind of sort of give me a framework for, but it, they don't give me that. They don't give me the human experience. Okay, so this is all good stuff, and we're going to you know, take some colors after the break and dig in some more, but you're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're thinking about science and intellectual humility with Massimo Pigliuti from the City University of New York. Science professes to be a form of intellectual humility, and it often is, but sometimes scientists get tempted to become scientistic, and then they abandon humility in favor of intellectual arrogance. How can we prevent this from happening? Resisting the lure of intellectual arrogance when Philosophy Talk continues. Science may be able to help us achieve progress, but doesn't the heart speak a language that science cannot grasp? I'm Ken Taylor, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy, and our guest is Massimo Pilucci from the City University of New York. Today we're thinking about whether science ever overreaches. And we've got a caller in the line, Peter from San Francisco. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Peter. What's Thank your you. comment or question? Uh, well, uh, first of all, it really is a, it's a great discussion. And what I'm noticing as I'm listening here is that um, what appears to be the arrogant side of science that you're talking about is when science assumes that there's a certain truth and that we're, um, we're searching for the truth in reality. Whereas I think the other part of the conversation, which I think is more relevant, is that science is a an ongoing conversation that has a certain rigor to it, and that's the rigor of logic, logic and mathematics. But, um, but there's never an end to it. There's never an end to the conversation. It just continues. Well, thanks for the comment, Peter. So, Massimo, what do you think? I mean, I think there is something to science as an ongoing, self-correcting, right, continuous thing that is willing to reconsider even what it takes to be received. And again, you right. said there's this temptation to think about uh, 
to equate science with reason, there's another source of that temptation, the kind of continual right. self-correcting nature of, of, of science. And not politics isn't like that. No, it's not. But so, so I think one way to think about it is um, in the difference, let's say, between a scientific theory and in a philosophical account. I don't like to, to use the word theory for in philosophy, but let's say account. So let's say, for instance, we're talking about the difference between utilitarianism, deontology, and virtue ethics in ethics, right? In, in metaethics discussions. Okay. Uh, if in, on the one hand, and on the other hand, we're talking about I don't know the standard model in physics versus string theory. Now, when it comes to the standard model versus string theory, one of them is going to be turned out to be true or closer to the truth than the other one. And this is an empirical question that potentially, at least, it's going to be answerable uh, in certain ways. I say potentially because, you know, you never know if you have actually enough of the sort of what it takes technically and, and brain power wise to do it. But potentially it's possible. On the other hand, if you ask me to say, uh, to answer the question, you know, is, is virtual ethics true? I'm going to look at you with a very puzzled look and say, I don't know what you're talking about. Really? That's I mean, the wrong question. Right? I mean, virtual ethics is, or utilitarianism or deontology, is a framework. So I, you can ask me if it is coherent, if it involves, you know, for instance, contradictions or inconsistencies, or you can ask me if it is useful for certain things, what, it, what it's supposed to be doing, you know, guiding us through life and making decisions and so on and so forth. But true? So, uh, so I'm not no. sure I agree with you about that, but I do agree with you about something. What I think is underlying your reluctance to call virtue ethics true, and because and mm -hmm. philosophical conversations, like scientific conversations, I think are long form conversations spread over centuries, right? And yes. some of it is about what is so, but some of it is about what we ought to do. Some of it is like uh, trying to answer to what's already so. Some of it is trying to make, well, what should we make be so? And it's long form and it's spread over and there's lots of give and take and there's burdens discharged and burdens not yet discharged. And it's a form yeah. of rational, extended rationality too. I suppose literature is the same way. Yeah. But I like what Massimo was saying earlier about um, needing to read literary texts uh, in order to understand colonialism. There is, I mean, obviously literature has many different uh, functions, values, and purposes, but the phenomenological, the delivery of phenomenological data is definitely among them. You, you get to feel, like we, like we experienced with that poet, the slam poetry that we heard in Liza Veal's report, you get to feel what right. it's like to be a kind of person that you aren't. And that's really vital, and that, that's not really yeah. substitutable. So let's, uh, let's get some more voices in here. We've got Russell in Palo Alto on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Russell. What's your comment or question? Hi, I'm happy to be with you. I want to tell you I was the co-founder of a ESP research program at Stanford Research Institute that ran for 20 years. We were working for the CIA and other parts of the government. We found downed airplanes, kidnapped American hostages, Russian submarines, Soviet weapons factories. You were the we X-Files. We were the, we were the real X-Files. 20-year program run by three physicists, well-known in their primary fields of lasers and nuclear physics. And we published our findings in Nature magazine and the proceedings of the Institute of Electrical Engineers, very well-reviewed, as you know. Okay, but bring so this I home for me. I, so I take exception to your... Visitors comment that everyone knows that parapsychology is pseudoscience. 
Ah, that's where you're going. Okay, thanks, thanks for the call, Russell. Okay, Massimo, that that was uh, thrown at you. The gauntlet was thrown. When do you respond? Yeah, I, I am gonna just let it go there uh, because otherwise we have to have another hour of discussion about pseudoscience. I'll I'll stand by my claim, but we can have a discussion another time. What I'd like to do, however, is to go back to gender, if I can, for a okay. minute, because it's a good it's a good example uh, of what we were talking about. So. To some extent, it's true, in fact, to a large extent, it's true that you can do a lot of interesting scientific research on gender, whether it's, you know, yeah, it's going to be biased and the biases can be corrected. And, you know, that's in part how science works, by correcting its its own biases, as we were saying earlier. Now, suppose that it turns out that gender has a biological component to it. Okay, uh, who knows how much, who knows what, how exactly it works. But let's say that, that it turns out as a matter of empirical fact that, yeah, actually, it's not entirely socially constructed. Uh, there is a part of it that, that depends on culture, but there is a part of it that depends on, 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 on genetics, let's say. Who cares? In well, terms of what we're actually talking about that matters, that is, you know, the, the, the rights of people who think of themselves in one way or the other, who are transgender or not, who, are, who identify themselves in one way or who are gender fluid or whatever it is, why does that matter? Well, I mean, it's here's, a similar. He, yeah, here's, a, here's a way it might matter. I don't know if it does matter uh, or would matter. I'm not saying, but here's how it might matter. It increases our critical self-understanding. It increases our, our understanding of the sources of this. So look, there's back to the manifest versus the scientific image, right? Partly the manifest image this is not completely true, but partly the manifest image has to do more with our first-person understanding and then our, our philosophical articulation of the deliverances of this first-person understanding. We re-recognize right. ourselves as a creatures with a sense of open possibility and all that sort of stuff. That's right. from the first-person point of view. So comes along and says, well, you know what? You're also a brain and blah, blah, blah. So now we got to try and reconcile this. And when we, if we succeed in re reconciling this, our critical self-understanding is increased. So I, I don't think we yeah. should say, ever say that, well, the first-person perspective, the lived experience is immune to any kind of correction in light of the deli deliverance no, 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 of no. sciences, right? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And that's not what I meant to say. Uh, so I'm going to correct myself. No, that's right. In fact, one of the things that does annoy me uh, as, as a philosopher and as a scientist is precisely when people say, hey, it's my experience and who are you to tell me otherwise? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, let me, let me show you this experiment that shows yeah. you otherwise. Mm -hmm. So, yes, in terms of self-understanding, yes, I was talking in terms of rights. Right. So a lot of the discussions are going on here uh, on, in this particular issue of gender is, you know, should certain people be allowed to do this thing or that? Or that? Well, that is a conversation, it seems to me. It's, at, it's being conducted and it should be conducted at the level of what is a right and what are we uh, granting when we grant certain rights? And, you know, these are these societal agreements. Whether the person that is asking to go to this bathroom or that bathroom or to dress this way or that way is actually, in fact, influenced in that behavior by genes, by environment, or by a more, much more likely a combin complex combination of both, uh, okay, uh, that's yeah. interesting to know. I agree but, with you. I agree with you. Right? I, I yeah. agree with you. I mean, that's why I said... You could have a scientific understanding of the basis and the cognitive, moral, social, evolved basis of ethical life, but that doesn't, re that doesn't replace ethical life and right. the questions that no. arise no. only in the course of like working through ethical life. I agree with that totally. We got a question from email. Let's just throw it in uh, while we got a few, few minutes left. It's from Alvin from Berkeley. says, please comment on how inappropriate it is for climate change alarmists to call scientists who question the doomsday model predictions oh. of global warming as deniers, is not a response of authentic scientists. Scientists are supposed to be skeptical. Uh, you can respond to that, but here's a question I want to ask you. We've, we're almost out of time. 
I don't think science is intrinsically either invites or encourages intellectual arrogance, but I know lots of scientists who are intellectually arrogant. And I, lots who are uh, not. And lots who are not. And I even know some philosophers <laughs> who are tempted by scientism. How do we uh-huh. how do we stop this? I mean, do we need to train scientists differently? This is kind of related to Alvin's question, but do we need to train scientists differently? And if so, how? I think we need to train both scientists and philosophers differently and, frankly, the general public. So let's get down to that to that one. Um, it, it's an important issue. Scientists do need to have a little bit more understanding, not just of the humanities in general, but of philosophy in particular. And guess what? When I talk to graduate students in the science, sciences, they're very open to that idea. They would love to have a course in philosophy of science or philosophy in history of science. They would love to have a course on ethics. But then their uh, advisors uh, respond that, now that's a waste of time because that takes time away from, you know, the technical training and and it's not happening. Similarly, on the other side of the divide uh, of the two cultures, you know, I really think that philosophers should be exposed to science, to to courses in sciences or to to cross-talk to scientists, certainly whenever they think that they have something meaningful to say about science, which, of course, begins with everybody who considers themselves a philosopher of science. They really ought to do some science or at least know a hell of a lot of science before they they talk about it. So how do we do this? This is an issue, a really serious issue of sort of revising the curriculum and and expanding the idea of cross-disciplinary talk. Everybody, every dean and, and provost that I know of talks about, you know, loves to talk about interdisciplinarity, <laughs> but they don't, then they, when they, they ask, ask walk them the for walk. the money to do it, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I agree because... money to do it, they don't. I agree because I think it's easy to get into this kind of zero-sum game mindset as though it's either science or it's the humanities, but we've got to work together. You know, it's, science can correct some of the sort of mistakes in the manifest image, but by the same Correct. token... The humanities can come in and supplement. The yeah, there's pressure of both ways. And you know what? I love it. We shouldn't have two cultures. We should have one amalgamated culture. That's kind of what you're both saying. But Massimo, on that note, I'm going to thank you for joining. This has been a great conversation, not a hint of intellectual arrogance. <laughs> it was a pleasure, guys. <laughs> Our guest has been Massimo Pilucciga, professor of philosophy at the City University of New York, co-editor of Science Unlimited, The Challenges of Scientism. So, Josh, you got any scientific, scientistic, <laughs> pseudoscientific, non-scientific thoughts to uh, leave us with? Look, I mean, I, you know, I think this was fantastic. And, and, you know, I think it's about finding the way to live in this middle space because we've got to be massively respectful of science and leery of pseudoscience, especially in this age of fake news. But at the same time, we've got to leave room for phenomenology and for values that are probably not going to get addressed by science. So I, I think if somehow we've got to live in this middle ground and work together, be collaborative. You know, the scientists have to listen to humanists when they tell them there may be biases creeping into their experiments. Yeah, yeah. And we got to listen to so the, the scientists. Way I, the way I put this is that the pressure, the, this reconciliation project between the manifest image and the scientific image, some people think the pressure goes all all one way from the scientific image to the manifest image, but I think it's a both ways right. thing, and because it's a both ways thing, it's a really hard thing. But you know what? That's why I do philosophy, and that's why you listen to a philosophy talk, and that's why this conversation continues at Philosopher's Corner at our online community of thinkers, where our motto with apologies to Descartes is cogito ergo blago, I think, therefore I blog, and you, you too, can become a partner in that community just by visiting our website, philosophytalk.org. And if you have a question that wasn't addressed in today's show, we'd love to hear from you. Send it to us at comments at philosophytalk.org, and we may feature it on the blog. Now here's someone whose thoughts reach way over the speed limit. It's Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher.
Ian Scholes, with the war on science right now, they say the country is becoming dumber. That much is inarguable. The Internet, the GOP, and the Marvel Universe are to blame. That's a known fact. As far as science goes, science got into trouble when it started to claim things for itself that probably should have been left on the table. Probably not science's fault, just lazy journalism, but every day, still, we see headlines like the science of the deal, get something down to a science, the imperfect science of tariff building, the science of dating, the science of cheating, survival, and Bitcoin. So science is everywhere, but most of it's fake, a shill. And some things that used to be science-y aren't anymore. Psychiatry and astrophysics come to mind. Movies and books used to be full of shrinks and physicists sorting it all out for the audience. That's right, little Timmy. Ordinary electricity is deadly to these Martian invaders. Remember Simon Oakland at the end of Psycho, mansplaining Norman Bates to lawyers and police and us? Ironic, since he later became Darren McGavin's newspaper editor and Night Stalker. Even as Darren McGavin unearthed vampires and werewolves in urban environments, Simon Oakland didn't want his newspaper to report anything. Night Stalker was an inspiration for X-Files, which also spent years not explaining mysterious goings-on. See, America got tired of the explaining. We love to fix cars, but the new ones got too complicated and connected to the Internet, which is just wrong. We still love to build model trains, but where do we put them in our tiny houses? Popular mechanics and science digests have been replaced by Google. Science lost its hold in our technophile hearts. For years it was, it ain't rocket science, it ain't brain surgery, applied to almost any mundane job you could think of. Then it trickled up to rocket scientists and brain surgeons themselves. They ain't so special. Computers are half of it. A robot could do their job. Soon we embraced our ignorance, Googled or bribed our waiter of jams, and came to believe that pretty much everything in the world is a scam, a sham, a shame, and a wonder. Science is not much help, frankly. We turned to Fox News and folk wisdom. Old wives' tales, except my one grandma didn't speak any English, and the other grandma, frankly, was kind of racist. They taught me nothing. A stitch in time saves nine, for example. Nine what? Nine stitches? How big a savings is that, really? How many stitches does time have? If it's just one, the old wife is lying to us, and if there's a million stitches in time, nine stitches saved is an insult to time spent. What's the point? It's why grandmas keep themselves to themselves these days, and science is mainly about pharmacological breakthroughs, treatments for diseases we developed just so science could give us drugs for them. Along the way, Big Pharma, a.k.a. Science Daddy, also gave us a new miracle painkiller. Don't worry, we are told it's only addictive if you crush it up and start it. Well, thanks for the tip, Big Pharma. As you know, addicts do not consult their physicians before consuming. So you might say, we have no more science. Just consultants, startups, rampant fraud, addicts, the rise once more of fear and superstition, paranoia, denial, and the end of civilization as we know it. As we know it, mind. As we have seen, we no longer know much, and a little knowledge, Grandma taught us, is a dangerous thing. But maybe not. Grandma might have got that wrong, too. How little knowledge is too little? Who measures that? I know they don't measure ignorance in school anymore. That's a known fact. I gotta go. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of KALW Local Public Radio San Francisco and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2018. Our executive producers are David Demarest and Matt Martin. The senior producer is Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Cindy Prince-Baum is our director of marketing. Thanks also to Merle Kessler, Angela Johnston, and Lauren Schechter. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from Stanford University and from the partners at our online community of thinkers. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you too can become a partner in our community of thinkers. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. An arrogant scientist is one who distances his or her own research from the tax-paying public that enabled the research to happen in the first place. That's an arrogant scientist.